So I grew up in a small town in central Kansas, Salina, Kansas. And oh, hey, whew, we're small, but you know, proud. Um, my parents were both public school teachers. And to make extra money in the summer, my dad would drive, uh, or he would teach driver's ed for the school district. They gave him this little, little car from the dealership with a, a huge driver's ed sign on the top of it. And they wired a brake pedal on the passenger side so that he could stop the car in case something got into trouble. So I grew up thinking learning to drive was, was really cool. And back then you could get, um, this dates me, but you could get your restricted license at age 14, which meant you could drive to school and work and church all by yourself. And I turned 14 in October of my eighth grade year, still in middle school. And two days later, I got my learner's permit. permit. And my dad was a driver's ed teacher. Like, he didn't know how to say no to me when I said, let's go drive. And so I learned to drive very quickly. And just a few weeks later, took my driver's exam. And I passed the written part. I missed, um, I think it was three on the driving test. And you could only miss two. But the lady knew my dad. And so she passed me. I should not have been driving on my own at this point. I was a 14-year-old eighth grader with a driver's license. And to make things more interesting, my family, like our side hustle was we owned a vending machine business, like a little gumball and candy machines all over central Kansas. And my first job was running these vending machine routes. And since driving for work was okay on my restricted license, I could go anywhere. And just say, I'm on my way. I was always on my way to a vending machine. Um, and I have this very strong memory, though, of the very first time I drove without one of my parents in the car. And I was all by myself. I left my house to go to our business partner's house to pick up some product to go do some vending machine routes. And, and I was, in the moment, just uh, giddy. I was, like, overwhelmed um, by the absence of a parent looking over my shoulder. This meant nobody was watching me, and I could drive as fast as I wanted to. And I did drive as fast as I wanted to. I was squealing the tires and gunning it around corners. I was like driving like a maniac, and I don't know what I was thinking. This car was a 1983 Buick Estate station wagon. <laughs> it was dark brown, people. The car was brown. It looked like a hearse. Actually, a hearse would have been cooler than what this car looked like. But I did not care. I had tasted freedom, and it tasted fine. And I remember I was flying around corners and going to the neighbor's house, this house where our business partner was, rounded a corner going way too fast, and I kind of jerked the wheel and, um, and let off the gas at the same time, and the car stalled. And this had never happened to me before. And you know when that happened, at least in old cars, I don't know now because I don't drive like this now, mostly. Um, the, the, the power steering and power brakes went away instantly. And I was, I was freaking out. This had never happened to me. I, and all I knew is I have to get this car started again. And the only way I had ever started a car was in park. So I'm going 30 miles an hour and I threw it into park. I don't know if you have ever heard the sound that a car makes when you throw it in park at 30 miles an hour, but it is not good. It is not a good sound. It sounded like um, the, what, what it sounds like when you're going up the first hill of a roller coaster. You know, the kick, 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 really loud. It was like, it was something like that. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, I've killed this car on my first solo ride. Like, this is horrible. 
Uh, I finally came to a stop, got the car started again, and let me tell you, I was a model driver for a long time <laughs> after that. But I have, have thought I'm going to share this story so many times on this Sunday, on, on Ascension Sunday, because I don't know why, I just always think of that, my first solo ride, um, because the disciples here are about to take their first drive, as it were, without Jesus in the car. And the absence of Jesus is going to be powerful. They're not joyriding, man. They, they were kind of stalled out. And it, I think it brings to light one of the most powerful forces in the world. It's a force called absence. Absence is a powerful thing. It's that thing that we all sense when some kind of meaningful presence has been interrupted. You know, without first a presence, there can be no absence. And the stronger the, the presence was felt, the more deeply the absence will be felt. Remember when we dropped off Nick at college last fall for the first time, I literally cried all the way home. Kristen was like, you got to get it together, man. Um, <laughs> And then for like days after that, I was just moping around. And those first few months, you know, me and Kristen and, and Lewis would be hanging around and somebody would say, man, I really, I really miss Nick, especially Lewis. Like, you don't want to talk to your parents about everything. And he kept going, I talked to Nick about this stuff, not you guys. Like, I need him to be here. For a long time, his absence was powerfully felt because his presence had been so important to us. And Jesus' absence after the cross was was powerfully felt by his disciples because his presence had meant so much to them. And then there was this weird renewed hope as he started to appear to them after the resurrection. And finally came a decisive moment when that wasn't going to happen anymore. And we call this the ascension of Christ. It's really one of the most theologically important moments in Christ's life and ministry, which is kind of strange because most of us know very little about the meaning of the ascension. Like if I ask you to, to talk, just share some thoughts about things like the birth or the teachings or the life, um, death, resurrection of Christ, you could probably talk for a while. But if I ask you to expound on the ascension, I don't know how long that, that would go, right? The story begins in, in the Gospel of Luke. It begins after the road to Emmaus. And Jesus suddenly appears back in Jerusalem. He says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So here he mentions like the three pillars of the Jewish faith. Three, in fact, three major components of their Bible. The law, which is the, the first five books. Basic instructions on how to be the people of God. And the prophets, sort of a scathing critique on how that was going, trying to be the people of God. And then the Psalms, their, their prayer book, the, the poetic engagement with God for the people. And, and Jesus is saying his ministry is the fulfillment of these massive Jewish categories here. The law, the prophets, the poets. He says they've all been pointing to his life and ministry. And then we're told, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So a closed mind won't do it for us here. It, there's a whole new way to read the story of God, the scriptures, and to interpret all of that, which, which is going to require them, and I think us to have an open mind. 
And he said to them, thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. So Messiah, of course, was a huge concept for the Jewish tradition. Here in in Greek, in in this um, book, the word is Christos. Um, In the Hebrew, the word was Mashiach. But they both mean the exact same thing. They just mean the anointed one. That's Messiah. It, It just talks about a human being anointed by God to perform a specific function or task. And in Christ's day, that function was thought to be very particular. What they were looking for was Messiah to be a warrior king like David. And this king would defeat their enemies in battle, deliver them from um, bondage, and then restore right worship in the temple. That's, that's what Messiah had to do. So nowhere to their minds did Messiah die. Not in battle, not on a cross. The Messiah comes to conquer, right? They're looking for a warrior king. There's no such thing as a dead Messiah. But Jesus says Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. So this is kind of a a major challenge to their concept of Messiah. It's not without analogs in in the Hebrew Bible. Isaiah talks about this, which he he kind of draws that forward. But he says, Messiah will die and rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, or all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So I want to break this down for a minute. Because I think that our our understanding as American Christians of this phrase, repentance and forgiveness of sins, will probably need to undergo a similar kind of major change as the Jewish concept of Messiah. And we're going to have to kind of let go some old ways of, of reading this that have become distorted over time. If you've been here a while, this this is review for you, but I think it's really important. So there are three words kind of four I want to really look at. First is repentance. That word in Greek is metanoia, which you were probably taught repentance has something to do with feeling really bad about something that you did and then saying, I'm sorry, and promising never to do that again. Anybody, that's what you grew up thinking? Okay. So metanoia doesn't mean that. Metanoia means go the other way. It, It means a change of direction and allegiance in life. It's actually related to our English word paranoia, like just returning to the same delusion over and over. Metanoia means don't do that. It means go a different way, a whole new direction for your entire life and being. In the um, common English Bible, that translation, they say it's a change of heart and life. That's pretty good. That's, that's repentance. That's metanoia, a change in heart and life or a change in direction and allegiance. Then there's forgiveness. In Greek, this word is aphesis, which is a word that um, was commonly used then to describe being released from bondage or captivity. When we hear the the word forgiveness, almost the only way we can hear it is is something like absolution. So you say, I'm sorry, I say, I forgive you, and then you're absolved, right? But aphesis has this connotation of liberation from captivity, more, it's more about liberation than, than absolution. You see the difference there, like receiving liberty, receiving amnesty in the form of forgiveness, right? We're no longer held captive, but we're set free. That's a thesis or forgiveness. And then sin, this is a huge one. Sin in Greek, though at least the word used here, is hamartia, which back then was not really a religious word. It was a common word 
that they use to describe something like missing the mark, like um, wandering from the right path, like getting off the path. So it, it meant one had lost their way. So they were missing out on their share of the good life, you might say, um, the life of wholeness and flourishing. And it was typically not even used that often as an individualistic thing. It was really more about um, communities than discrete people. It was about when whole societies and groups of people were missing the mark, were were losing the way. I I think you could just think about American society right now. Does that... I mean, do you think about that? Like missing the mark, like wandering from the past, so the, and because of that, they just kind of make a, make a mess of everything. Missing out on the life of flourishing and peace and harmony, reconciliation. That's, that's very close to this idea of hamartia or sin. And the only way back from hamartia, sin, missing the mark, taking the wrong path, the only way back when you've taken the wrong path is to turn around, metanoia. Go the other direction. These words are working together. He's painting a picture. It's kind of lost on us because we see them as religious things. But he's saying when you're going the wrong way, you need to repent, turn around, and, and go in the other direction with your whole heart and life. So the, the solution for whole groups of people, communities, not just um, personal. Like this isn't some personal religious conversion being described here. It's saying when when y'all are going the wrong direction, you have to stop going that way, turn around, pursue a different course, not simply as individuals, although that's part of it, and it's always part of it, um, but as the people of God. And so if you kind of put this together and read this repentance for the forgiveness of sins, the way the first hearers would have heard this, it would have sounded something like, change your heart and life, metanoia, repent, and be released from bondage and captivity. Aphesis, forgiven. That stems from this wandering from the white, from from the right path, sin, hamartia, that has you all missing the mark, and, and missing out on the good life of wholeness and, and flourishing. And then he says that this must be proclaimed not just to the, the Jews, but to um, ta ethnos, the nations. It's another huge category for the Hebrew people. You know, the ancient world was a very dangerous place, an uncertain place, and really the only way to survive was to band together with your tribe, you know? So, like, individualism was not even a thing in the ancient world. It was just untenable. You would die. So you banded together with a bunch of people for survival and to try to pursue a future where your group could wind up on top, or at least okay, And the biblical name for these groups that banded together for survival was the nations, ta ethnos. It's where we get the word ethnicity. But it's it's nations not as in like your country, like Canada or America. It was was more like a people or, or a tribe, more like Cherokee or Choctaw. The nations banded together to to help their way of life survive. And the way that they did this, the nations are notorious for this. They did this through war and violence, through vengeance and retribution. This is throughout the Hebrew scriptures. And this way of organizing the world had, over the thousands of years, just caused 
immeasurable suffering for humanity. I mean, if we could see the extent of the damage that this has done throughout history, all the violence and bloodshed, the genocide, pain and suffering that the nations have caused, just conducting business the way the nations conduct business, it, it would overwhelm us. And it's part of what Jesus is saying, just in this really well-known phrase, is that when Messiah comes, that's the problem that's being addressed. Ultimately, this has to get to the nations. It's a macro-level problem. So if you just step back here for a moment and look at the big picture of what Jesus is claiming, he's saying Messiah, anointed one, has come into the world not just to win, you know, one more stupid war in a long line of stupid wars. That rather, Messiah is God in human flesh taking on all the, the hamartia, the, the sin of the nations. Their, their bondage, their missing the mark, their wrong paths in the way they conduct their business. God in Christ is taking all of that brokenness on God's self, on Christ's shoulders, saying, in effect, just do, do your worst to God. Like, just do what the nations always do. But then instead of responding in kind, the way the nations always do, with war and bloodshed and revenge and violence, God responds through Christ by just bearing it, bearing that sinfulness, bearing the full weight of this broken way of life, this wandering from the path, and then forgiving his executioners, like in the middle of it, saying, Father, forgive them, forgoing vengeance, offering love and forgiveness, and demonstrating in, in that act in this new path to reconciliation, that this is the nature of the kingdom, reconciliation. And so when Jesus dies on the cross, he, he's literally paying the price of our hamartia, our sinfulness, not in that he's like balancing some imaginary cosmic ledger. He's paying the price we demanded that he pay, the nations, the price, the, the price that we have demanded of each other all throughout history in our bondage, our missing the mark as we follow the way of the nations. Jesus was paying that price. He wasn't paying God, you know, some imaginary blood price. We're the ones who demanded his blood, not God. And it was foolishness because Christ was innocent and good. And so it was, in a sense, all of humanity, the nations who put Jesus to death our brokenness, our sin, our way of being. That's what killed him. And then his death was revelation. It was God revealing that the way to shalom, to peace, to wholeness, to flourishing comes not at the tip of the sword, but through forgiveness and reconciliation. It's modeled there on the cross. And then by raising Christ from the dead, God vindicates this entire approach. God was saying, this is the way to be human, the Jesus way. This is how to be a people, how to be the nations, how to organize your common life together. And this way is so different that for any human being to embrace this way of life requires metanoia, 
a complete change of heart and life. He said it's almost like being born again, becoming a new humanity, both, both as persons and as communities. A complete change in direction, like comprehensively in the way that we relate in every direction, the way we relate to, to God, to the self, to each other, and even to the world. And, and no longer to be at war or vengeance or violence or whatever, but to be constantly reconciling in all those directions. So in essence, Jesus was offering a whole new way to be human. But to take part in it requires having to rethink basically everything about life and to leave behind all their wrong-headed ideas about God you know, that's, that's a tough one. And their violent, kind of tribal, cruel ways of organizing and treating each other. They'd have to drop things like all their theological certitudes. We've been um, on our um, Sunday nights where we do our um, roundtables, our, our last few, the um, Lenten roundtables and the Easter roundtables have all really dealt a lot with this, this idea of theological certitudes. And they had, they had to let some of these go, especially the, the idea of like an imaginary God who's far off somewhere in a place called heaven, who's really more like Zeus throwing lightning bolts at enemies from on high. And instead they had to embrace a God who is everywhere and always, but who's hard to notice because this God always appears humble and weak at the point of contact with humanity, just like Jesus on the cross. Like, this is revelation, right? And God does this so as not to overwhelm us, but it's, it, it makes God almost impossible to see if our only model is the nations and the warrior king and not like a sense of mystery and wonder and awe. They had to drop their ethnic prejudices, their need to be right and powerful and come out on, on top and exchange vengeance for reconciliation, to renounce power and dominance for gentleness and self-control. Jesus really subverted their approach to the world, even their, their um, ideas about this God who is vengeful, you know, and, and withholding and waiting to pounce. And instead he was revealing this God who is loving and close and eager to be near God's children, just loving them, setting them free. And so then what Jesus did is he began to just form this new community of followers, disciples, who would bear the image of this God. And then he told them, he, he died and rose and started appearing, and then he said, it's time for me to go away. But, you are witnesses, he said, of these things. It's another interesting word. The Greek word is martyrus. And you can kind of see in there, it's where we get the word martyr. To be a witness is to be a martyr. To bear witness are the ones who sh share in Jesus' death and resurrection. That's why he always said, take up your cross and follow me. This is how you bear witness. Only people who will drop their tribal ideologies, their need to win 
and take up their cross and follow Christ can form this new humanity, this new creation. And so it was um, that the church came to um, be called like um, the first fruits of the new creation, first early adopters of this new way of life. And, and in so doing, they became witnesses. They were, they were killed a lot. And even when they didn't, weren't killed outright, they were dying constantly to self, to the other, to the world around them. He said, you're witnesses. And part of the subtext of that, especially in light of the absence that's coming, is that Jesus can't or won't do this part for us. We have to choose to follow as people, as a community. We have to choose to surrender our old way of being, the way of the nations, and join with this whole new way of being. And, and to band together as a new nation. I mean, think about how much Jesus talked about. He, he called this new nation the kingdom of God. Over and over, he's like, you're now citizens of this kingdom. He said, band, band together and do this. Become this. And this is really the, the secret to understanding, I think, the ascension of Christ. Let's read on. He said, and see, I am sending upon you what my father promised. So stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So we'll talk, that's Holy Spirit stuff and the church, and we'll talk about that next week on the day of Pentecost. It says, he let them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he withdrew from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him. It's the first time they mention that. First time Jesus is worshipped is when he leaves. And returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple. Blessing God. Hang on to that phrase. So to part of our understanding of ascension, I think, involves asking the question, why? Like, why did he have to go away? Why did Jesus not just stay and, and hang out with his disciples? Why is he not still here somewhere where we could all, like, take a pilgrimage and get our picture took with him, you know? And at least part of the reason seemed to be just like the normal why parents have to let their children's leave, children leave the, the house, right? If he stuck around, um, they just keep letting him do all the work. And so they'd never grow up, never become fully human if he stuck around. That's, that's part of it. Another part um, seems to be the fact that as a discrete human person, Jesus was limited to a single place and time. In, in theology, this is called the scandal of particularity. The boundless God um, submits to particularity, to a particular human body and time and place. It's a scandal for God. But, but to extend the new reality of this kingdom of God to the nations would take a lot more people, you know, living all over the place in the way of Jesus. And so Christ plan to make um, his presence available to the nations was to stop living as a particular human being in a specific time and place and to live on as spirit. That's why he's saying that this gift will come to you. Live on as spirit through a particular people that that spirit draws together and constitutes. This is the church. So the ascension, in, a, in essence, that what I always 
think of, how I remember it in my mind, is that um, the ascension is like the detonator of the kingdom explosion, exploding the mission of God into the world. So when Jesus was alive, he's, he's only in one time and one place. After he ascended, those limits are, are gone. And he was free to be everywhere and always. And so through the ascension, the presence of Christ, the spirit of Christ, became universal. It's cosmic. It's, it's universally available. Accessible not just to the 12 and the people who could get near him, but to all the nations. And so he had to go for the nations so that they could come to live within the reality of God's presence with them. And as long as he stuck around, you know, they were, he was just limited to one time and place and his, his followers would kind of let him be the presence of God in the world and they'd never get around to doing what they were meant to do, which is to, to bear the image of God, to be God's presence to the world. And so this was Christ's final gift to his followers. It was his absence, which is strange to say because, you know, his his presence was so powerful, but there was an even greater power in his absence. I mean, there was just so much potential power packed into Christ's teaching, his presence, the the community that he was building around them, the the life of self-sacrifice that he inaugurated. But it was kind of just raw potential, just bubbling, about to explode and then they were, you know, after the, after the crucifixion, they're kind of in a holding pattern. They just couldn't get going, waiting for a sign of what they should do, what it all meant. And then, then Christ starts appearing, and then this, this moment, he is, it's the detonation, the kingdom explosion, igniting all of that potential and energy and un- unleashing it into the world to his followers who lived their life bearing witness, like dying, marturo, right? Dying to self. And and in so doing, bearing witness to the reality that there's just so much more power and love and self-sacrifice than in all the armies and ideologies the nations have to offer. When he was alive, alive, everywhere that Jesus went, um, the world sort of caught a little glimpse of this new reality, the kingdom of God. His power would be unleashed just like person to person or with little groups as he healed bodies and mended or reconciled relationships. But he was, you know, he had just, it was a scandal of particularity. He had been just one man. He couldn't meet everyone in the entire world. But through the ascension, he would. Christ would meet everyone, could meet everyone. He would detonate his presence through the church and into the world so that all the nations could see God, experience God. And it's kind of wild, you know, like soon after, like that same day, things that used to only happen when Jesus was around began to happen wherever his followers went. He's a bunch of ordinary people, mostly failures, who had literally just abandoned him, became martyrs, martyrs, witnesses, who soon would, I mean, almost all the disciples lay down their lives, died. And along the way, just came absolutely more alive with every little death they died to self at the other. And so it was like this 
bunch of ragamuffin disciples, mostly failures, when Jesus was in the car. When he left, they started to find it. And they would just go on to incredible faithfulness after the ascension. They would, they would tell people, I don't think you see it, but God doesn't, like Jesus, who died and rose from the dead but then left, he, he did that because he doesn't want to live for us. He wants to live through us, in us, and through us out into the world, and that this will help us come fully alive through these new kinds of relationships of, of love and grace and self-sacrifice. And they, they learned to discern his presence with them. They, you know, he had predicted, whenever two or three are gathered together, I'm with them. And they sensed it, that God's spirit was with them. And it helped them see the world and themselves more truthfully. His, his absence would kind of open up a void a space in their midst and his followers just stepped into that space boldly through the power of the Holy Spirit and as they did they found that Jesus began to live on in the world through them in fact the Apostle Paul he would always call the church the body of Christ you're the place Christ is physically present now in the world the church they also stopped waiting on Messiah to come fix everything Stopped waiting on a warrior king. They just got to work fixing things themselves because the spirit of the Messiah was alive in their hearts. And we talked about this. Like, this is why Christians for centuries, they were the only ones building hospitals, the only ones caring for the sick in the middle of a plague, the only ones, like, doing public education. The way they lifted up people on the margins, minorities, women, it was, it, it was good for, for, for a long time. It was this explosion of the spirit that really changed the world. And for us, of course, I mean, we know the nations. We're in the nations. And they still groan and cry out to God and crash into each other and hurt each other, worship their idols and their armies and try to control the world and, and they're, you know, trashing their relationship to God and self and other world. And before the ascension, Jesus, he could just deal with this a few people at a time. But after it, he said, you have to trust me. The world is ever going to know God is real. That, that God is not angry with us. That God just offers forgiveness. Come, come free. You know, God is always with us, leading us to, to peace. If, if the nations are ever going to see the face of God, they'll have to see the face of God in your face and my face, and in the face of our community. He said, you will be my witnesses. And so if he's going to live on in the world, he lives on through, through you and me. Teresa of Avila famously said it this way, and I love this, this prayer. She says, Christ has no body now but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands. Yours are the feet. Yours are the eyes. You are his body. Christ has no body now but yours.
And this, this was his final teaching. And this is, this is the great importance, I think, of Ascension Sunday that we remember. This, this is now how Christ is present in the world. Not, not just us as individuals, but as persons who are part of this new community, this new humanity. You would think, you know, I was freaking out in the car when the parents went around and something went, went wrong. You would think they would kind of freak out because things did start going wrong. But it's weird. The ascension was greeted by them as good news. It says they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. They were continually in the temple blessing God. You know, usually when someone leaves, there's great sadness. But they went back to Jerusalem where they had been hiding in fear. And now they're just out in the temple unafraid. They had not gone back to the temple. All of a sudden, they're just, they're just out there going, whatever, do your worst. I know who I belong to. The fear was gone. And what was left was this deep love of God and this, this tangible experience of God's presence that was mostly mediated to them through this new community who just said, I'm going to lay down my life for you guys. Like, don't kill me. I'm giving you the gun. Don't shoot it at me, right? I'm going to be, I'm going to greet you always with love and mercy and grace. And, and this, this spirit arose in their midst, the spirit of God. It was, it was the spirit of Christ binding them together. The world, you guys, the world has never been the same. And it was the detonator. And you and I, and Redemption Church, we're part of the explosion. It's still happening. And this is what it means to follow Christ, to surrender our lives to this, to the pursuit of what Jesus called a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. Amen? Let's pray. Oh God, we, um, we are grateful that Christ came and took on human flesh and that he lived so faithfully and taught us what that looks like, what it, what it looks like to be human. That he was faithful all the way to the cross, dying, burying our sins, and, and then rising again and, and here ascending back to you, our Father, and that somehow his going away, his absence, means for us a powerful presence of your spirit, oh God. I pray that we wouldn't get all busy doing the religious pieces of life and, and miss this idea that your spirit is alive and in us, binding our hearts together, making us come alive, making us your witnesses. And I pray, God, also as we think about next week and just head toward Pentecost and a chance to join with redemption in particular, I pray that you would be stirring in the hearts of folks who are kind of new this year. And maybe even in the hearts of folks who have been around here a while or maybe a long while, just to once again say, I'm in on this thing, I'm all in. And I pray that we would be your witnesses, that we would bear the image 
broken and fragile and just messed up as we are, that we would bear the image of you, God, to this world, to the nations. We pray this all in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, our God. Amen. Will you stand, please? We're going to receive communion now. The, um, the way we do communion at Redemption is we'll just, you'll be released row by row by the ushers and you'll come forward and be offered a plate of bread and a cup. Just take a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup and receive it. And as you do, they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And of course we do this because on the last night, um, right before he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread and a cup and he, he passed it, just one loaf and the same cup. They all shared in this, this same kind of this meal of oneness. And, and he said, okay, so this, this bread is like my body. This cup is like my blood, which to them meant life. He said, take, take my body, take my life into your life and be made of what I'm made out and then go be my witnesses. And he said, every time you gather, do this. And so this is why we receive communion and why it's kind of at the center of our worship. And so it's also why we invite all who call on the name of Jesus to join us at the table. So, and our kids are part of this, so come on in. And as, um, before we do that though, would you join me and let's pray a blessing on the elements. Lord, we do ask you to bless the, the bread here in the cup. May it be to us a spiritual food and drink a means of your grace. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Would you come and live inside us and make us new from the inside out and then send us out into the world to be salt and light and let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?